All right, let's move right along with unit two and finish it with migration. So we are going to cover topic 2.10 through 2.12. Uh, this is the causes of migration. So again, have the articulation guide out and let's get going. Explain how different causal factors encourage migration. So here is the essential knowledge in 2.c.1. Migration is commonly divided into push and pull factors, and then 2.c.2, push and pull factors and intervening opportunities and obstacles can be cultural, demographic, economic, environmental, or political. All right, so here we go. Migration is the permanent or semi-permanent relocation of people from one place to another. Most people who move do so in search of a better life. And remember, the number one reason why people move is economic. They are part of a voluntary migration where you have decided to move by choice. The choice usually combines a decision to move away from some place with a decision to move towards some place. And that is really push and pull factors. So people generally decide to move because of a push factor. They have been pushed out of their current location. I want you to think of it as being something negative. There is something negative about what's happening at their location. Push factor uh, usually um, is going to be something like you lost a job, uh, there is a drought or a famine, uh, could be some type of political, um, you're being forced out politically, uh, culturally, um, view it as negative. And then once migrants decide to leave, they usually choose a destination based on something positive. They are being pulled in to a location. So if you were to lose a job, push factor, you're pushed out of your location and you get pulled to Silicon Valley, that's a pull factor. You're being pulled there for a job opportunity. The most common reason people migrate is because of lack of jobs and economic opportunities. We know that. These migrants will go to areas offering a greater economic opportunity. So let's add a little bit of history to it, right? So let's talk about one with push and pull factors. Uh, the greatest trend is from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt. So factory workers in the Rust Belt in the 1970s, unemployment rose. Uh, you had manufacturing states such as, you know, where I grew up, New York, like where Buffalo is, Erie, Pennsylvania, Michigan with the cars. Uh, they start to close down the factories, you lose your job, you're pushed out. But then we started to see migration towards the southern states. There's a pull factor there. They moved to the southern states like Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia, and we could go into all of those reasons. Uh, job opportunities, cheaper cost of living, cheaper land, lower taxes, right to work state versus a union state. There could be social factors. People will often migrate when they experience discrimination and persecution because of their ethnicity, race, gender, or religion. They move to locations where they can practice their culture safely. They're usually influenced by some type of link or tie or a relative, like you know somebody who lives there and they feel safe, so you decide to move there. 
great example of this would be the Mormons in the United States. So push factors, uh, there were a lot of people who in Illinois, Missouri, um, did not like the Mormon faith being in their state. So they were pushed out of those states and they were pulled into Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, and they felt safe there. They felt like they had a place there. Uh, remember, the College Board really loves looking at religion and the Mormons because they are clustered together in Salt Lake City, Utah. Could be a political push and pull factor. People who oppose the policies of a government often migrate because they face prosecution uh, or persecution, arrest and discrimination. Um, such political migrants move for two countries that support their political views will often seek asylum. Um, and asylum is protection from the danger they faced in their home country. And we talked a lot about that, where if you feel like something is going to happen to you because you are in a country that persecutes your type of cultural, your values, your traditions, your beliefs, you may then petition the United States to seek asylum. If you don't let me go to the United States, I will be in danger of staying in my country. So a good historical example of this would be anti-communist uh, in Cuba. So push factor, opponents of Castro were jailed or killed if they spoke against his government. And then pull factor, uh, they wanted to go to the United States where they would seek asylum. And remember, again, you could talk about the gravity model there, 90 miles off the coast of Florida, there's that greater pull to the United States. Uh, we talked a little bit about it in class, about you know if you, if you are gay and your country uh, is opposed to it, you wanna seek asylum. Uh, if you're a Christian living in an Islamic state, you may seek asylum. Uh, those could be political, and you could kind of combine it with social factors as well. It could be an environmental push or pull factor. People often migrate to escape harm from natural disasters, drought, and unfavorable environmental conditions. Uh, so a good example of this, farmers from Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas in the 1930s, a severe drought caused thousands to lose their farm, push factor, and then they were pulled to California hoping to find work. Uh, you could talk about something more recent in Japan with 2011 with the nuclear power plant. An earthquake and tsunami damaged nuclear reactors, releasing radioactive materials. Uh, push factor, and residents then were pulled near the power plant, were resettled, I'm sorry, residents who are near the power plant were resettled to cities around Japan. Just a, a piece of advice, uh, there's been a lot of questions on push and pull factors in previous FRQs, and everybody wants to talk about political reasons. Uh, you're being persecuted by the government. And if you go back to old FRQs, they tend to ask very specific, um, or they want very specific details about that. Whereas if you use environmental, you could say drought, uh, you could say an earthquake, you can be more general. So just a heads up, if there's an FRQ, I don't want you to pick political. I want you to pick environmental or I want you to pick economic factors where you are able to be a little bit more general with your, uh, your answers on that rubric. There could be demographic push and pull factors, kind of tying us into the earlier part of the articulation guide. 
Some countries are imbalanced demographically. For example, in the case of gender imbalance, we talked about this for in China uh, with male to female. We could also look at young adults not being able to find someone to marry. Um, so we look at that as a possible push and pull factor. Um, something to be aware of. Remember, we had the Zelensky model. And Zelensky made a connection between migration patterns and the DTM. And this is implied in the articulation guide. So I'm going to say it again. This is Zelensky's model. What he did is he took the migration patterns and applied it to the DTM. And his model explains that countries in stage two and three of the DTM, so these would be your periphery and semi-periphery, your third world, your second world countries, experience rapid population growth and overcrowding. We knew that, right? If we look at the DTM, we will look at birth rates, death rates, natural increase rates. If we look at population pyramids, we look at the bottom, we look at the top, we look at your life expectancy, and we look at the name of the country. We know that there is rapid population growth. This overcrowding limits the economic opportunities of the people and acts as a push factor. They try to migrate to less crowded stage four, stage five countries that offer greater economic opportunities with growing economies and aging populations. Um, we could also talk about, you know, add another term in there like the brain drain, where you are educated, um, you're educated in a spot, and then you leave to go to another place, another country where there are more opportunities for you. And then another example of a demographic push and pull factor, uh, farmers in Europe in the 1800s, uh, the push factor, the population of industrial countries increased while land became scarce. So they were pulled uh, to the United States um, and you could talk about the Homestead Act uh, and how they got plots of land. Uh, if we want to go back to more of that brain drain example, young educated people in less developed countries like in Latin America, North Africa, Middle East and Asia. Uh, so here's the push factor. Many people in less developed countries live in areas where population is growing very quickly and unemployment is high. So they want to be pulled to developed countries in North America and Europe where you have an aging population, you have a concern about the dependency ratio, you have a concern about your workforce, so they attract immigrants from less developed countries to go work there. And then if you look at the last part, intervening opportunities or obstacles. I want you to think of opportunities as positive, obstacle as something negative, um, intervening, they kind of stop the flow. All right, so the easiest one to talk about is obviously something that's an obstacle. So if I'm in the process of moving, right, I go from my origin to my destination, this is something that are a barrier that makes me reaching my desired destination more difficult. And again, it can be economic, social, political, environmental. So something is going to get in my way to reach my destination. And the guy who came up with this was Lee, and he's not on the articulation guide, but he comes up with intervening obstacles, intervening opportunities, and it's called Lee's model of migration. So you add the push and pull factors. We have Zelensky's model comparing it to the DTM. And now we're gonna look at something that either gets in your way or kind of changes your desired uh, destination. So let's talk about obstacles real fast. 
economic. You may start to move and realize you don't have enough money to reach your destination, and that becomes an obstacle. Social, you may be in the process of moving and a migrant gets married to someone who lives along the migration route and you decide, hey, my wife doesn't want to move, my husband doesn't want to move, and you stay put. Um, And that could actually be an opportunity. Uh, Political, a migrant can't get a visa needed to enter a country, so you make kind of that step migration, you get closer and closer to your final destination, and then you realize, I don't have the paperwork to get in. Uh, The biggest and the easiest one is environmental. Uh, It is hard to cross an ocean, a sea, a desert, a mountain. So if you are trying to get to Europe, uh, you want to move to Norway, you got to cross the ocean. And now it's a little bit easier with improvements in technology, transportation, communication. But, you know, 1800s, that was a big intervening obstacle. An opportunity is the opposite. So you think you want to go out to California and that is your migration route. However, you get offered a job in in Arizona. So that becomes an opportunity. Um, So you take the intervening obstacle and you spin it to an opportunity. Um, Real quick, I want to go into Ravenstein's Law of Migration. And I know I covered it earlier, but remember there are eight patterns or laws about migration tendencies. Um, Some have been modified, which we talked about with women working more, education of women, uh, getting later married in life, Uh, but these are the general patterns. Most migrants travel only a short distance, uh, and this is where we get the term distance decay, Um, the idea that things near each other are more closely connected than things that are farther apart. Most migrants travel long distances, usually settle in large urban areas. So if I'm going to make a big move, I'm not going to be pulled to an area like Topeka, Kansas. I'm going to be pulled to an area like Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, New York City. Um, We could also combine this again now with the gravity model, right? So the closer you are, uh, the bigger you are, the more gravitational pull you have. Um, So again, Combine the concept of distance decay, the belief in the greater pull in a larger community, and the assumption that more people are likely to migrate from a large community than a small one, that's the gravity model. Most migration occurs through step migration, a process in which migrants reach their eventual destination through a series of smaller moves. For example, a common pattern in this is rural to urban migration. A migrant from a small town is most likely to move first to a larger town, later to a small city, and then finally after they save money, get a better job offer, they move to that large city as their ultimate destination. And then the last one, most is rural to urban. Uh, And that's because most of the jobs are found in urban areas. And again, the revolution I want you to pick or write about is the Industrial Revolution. Rural areas needed fewer laborers on farms and cities needed people to work, um, especially in the factories. Um, And this rural to urban uh, remains common today. So those are some of the big, big ideas of Ravenstein. Just a couple of other things. Uh, There's a thing called counter migration. Each migration flow produces a movement in the opposite direction and that's called counter migration. Uh, For example, in the 1990s and early 2000s, as many Mexican migrants were moving to the United States, 
a counter migration of people moved from the United States to Mexico. Some were part of a return mi migration. Those are immigrants moving back to their formal, former home. Others were retirees from the United States who had never lived in Mexico, but were attracted to the warm weather and lower cost of living. Um, so that could be an example of counter migration. And I saw this a lot a couple of years ago on the television show House Hunters, that they retired from California where the cost of living is high, and they heard about these gated communities along the coast of Mexico, uh, where it was almost like a vacation style resort, where they could live right on the ocean, have the vacation amenities, um, and they wanted to move to Mexico because of the lower cost of living. Uh, youth, most migrants are young adults between the ages of 20 to 45. Um, again, for jobs, most usually do not have established jobs, especially in their 20s. They don't have a mortgage, they're not married, they don't have kids, so it's easier to kind of pick up and move. If you're 30-something years old, you have a mortgage, you have a husband, wife, kids, it makes it really hard to move because you don't want to pull your kids out of their school, and then you got to worry about selling your home. And then gender. We know that most international migrants are young males um, and internal migrants are females, but remember we talked about this. This is changing. This is changing where we are seeing women become educated. All right, so that's really 2.10. Let's get to 2.11, which is forced involuntary migration. Describe types of forced involuntary migration. Uh, and we covered a lot with voluntary with the push and pull factors and wanting to move. Uh, two point D.1, point forced migrations include slavery. That is the best example. Uh, while the Atlantic slave trade ended in the 19th century, slavery still exists today. Uh, the United Nations estimates that 21 million people worldwide are victimized by forced labor, five times the number of African-Americans enslaved in the United States in 1860. Um, one of the most important results of the European expansion was the slave trade. Uh, this was the largest example in history of forced migration. It's a type of movement in which people do not choose to relocate, but do so under some type of threat of violence. So in the 15th through the 19th century, about 12.5 million Africans were captured, enslaved, and forcibly moved from their homes in Africa to North America, to North America the Caribbean, and South America. And it also includes uh, refugees, internally displaced persons, and asylum seekers. All right, so let's talk about displaced persons and refugees. Remember, we already talked about asylum seeker. An asylum seeker, again, is you feel like if you stay in your state, in your country, something bad is going to happen to you. So instead of filling out the paperwork and getting on a wait list and waiting years to get into a country, you petition that government and say, listen, if I stay here, something bad is going to happen to me and I need you to let me to come to your country now. It's almost like you're, you're gonna kind of skip to the front of the line because if you don't, you will be jailed, you could be killed, you could be prosecuted, something bad will happen. So now let's go back to displaced persons and refugees. Forced migration can result from political and environmental crisis that threaten people's lives. Since such migrants usually flee quickly in order to stay alive, a lot of times they can't bring many items with them. 
Most intend to return to their homes once the danger has passed. If these migrants are part of the same country or they move to a part in the same country, they are classified as internally displaced persons. If they cross an international border and they have a well-founded fear that they will be harmed if they return home, those are called refugees. And the best example of that is the Syrian refugee crisis that we talked about, where more than half of the population fled, resulted in over 6 million internally displaced persons and over 4 million refugees. And we talked about that with Europe and whether or not you open up the borders. Uh, we discussed it a little bit with the United States, with Trump, and whether or not we accept the Syrian refugees. Remember I showed you the picture of that little boy who, uh, who died when his parents decided to cross the sea um, and he washed upon the shore. Um, so internally displaced, you are in the same country. So I'll give you an example, uh, a United States example with Katrina. Internally displaced means in the country. So when the city of New Orleans was destroyed, people were internally displaced to other parts of our country. They went to Texas, they went to the northern parts of the state of Louisiana. Uh, they were internally displaced. They were still in the United States. Um, a refugee, you would cross the border. So um, it, let's talk about Puerto Rico. And I know Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States, but after the earthquake and the hurricane of Puerto Rico, crossing that border, um, seeking refugee, coming to Florida, seeking help. Um, that would be an example of refugee. Okay, so uh, keep that in mind. Um, then we go to 2.D.2. Types of voluntary migration include transnational, transhumans, which is agriculture, internal, chain, step, guest worker, and rural to urban. All right, so let's kind of go through this. Uh, step by step. When we talk about transhumans, remember this was the idea of uh, animals are very picky. So during warmer months, you move your animals, your herd to higher levels of elevation where the temperature is cooler. And then during the winter months, you will move your herd to lower levels of elevation where the temperature is warmer. Um, and that's transhumans. Um, chain migration um, is which people move to communities where relatives or friends migrated previously. Chain migration increases migrant streams from one area to another and does result in that type of link, uh, social or political connectedness. So like Chinatown, Little Italy. Um, it results in a formation of an ethnic enclave. So these are neighborhoods filled primarily with people of the same ethnic group. So in Buffalo, you had the German part of the city. You had uh, the Polish part of the city. That's the chain migration. Step migration is you take, it, it's steps. It's, it's expensive. Um, so you take many steps to get to your final destination. Uh, guest worker, uh, best example of this would be uh, the United States and Mexico where we need manual labor, especially in the farms along the border. So you would live in Mexico, you would be a guest worker, you would go over the border, you would work, 
um, and then at night you would return back to uh, back to Mexico. And remember, we talked about remittance um, when you move from usually like poor countries to more wealthy countries or you have this idea of getting a job that's money that they send to their family and friends in the country that they left behind um, and then rural to urban we talked about with Ravenstein because most jobs are in the city people are going to move from the rural areas the countryside to look for those economic opportunities and then the last part, 2.12, what is the effect of all of this? Um, what is the effect of migration? We could explain historical, contemporary um, effects of migration. We could talk about the political, economic, and cultural effects. Um, so here are some things to just kind of keep in mind. Um, remember, there were different waves of immigration to the United States. Um, we have seen several trends in immigration and forced migration from other countries. Uh, we could talk about colonialism, imperialism. Between 1500 and 1700, European countries raced to colonize North America. By 1700, North America had been claimed primarily by England, France, and Spain. However, major sources of migrants entering the United States have shifted over time. So 1600 to 1808, that was forced migration enslaved Africans. 1808 to about 1890, this is the first wave of European immigration that came from the Northern and Western Europe. 1890 to 1914, second wave, uh, that's Southern and Eastern Europe. 1945 to the present day, Latin America and Asia. While some countries around the world have encouraged immigrants, others have actively restricted the flow of migration into their countries. Many countries have largely relied on immigrants to improve their economies, uh, to fill job opportunities. However, many people have cultural and political bias against immigrants and try to keep them out. Um, remember, the United States has placed few restrictions on immigration, um, well, in the, until the 1880s, sorry. Uh, they needed people to work the farmland. Uh, they encouraged immigration, and one of the policies was the Homestead Act. Um, in which the U.S. government gave land to settlers willing to stay and farm it for five years. Um, currently, the U.S. government offers visas to migrants who are well-educated, um, hoping to get them to remain in this country. So this is where you get the engineering, the doctors, um, science, computer technology. We also have the guest worker program, uh, usually to do unpleasant work, manual labor work. This program allows the immigrants to improve their fortunes in their new countries. Most countries also have family reunification policies allowing the migrants to sponsor family members to migrate to another country. Um, could be something with uh, when you go to school, if you wanted to go abroad, you can apply for uh, visas um, and you can have an easy pathway to becoming a permanent resident. Um, some of the other things to think about uh, xenophobia, where you may dislike a people who practice another culture. Um, sometimes this is based on uh, fear. Uh, you fear that immigrants will take jobs. Um, so you start to have, you know, this kind of a buildup. And this actually happened in the United States where there was so much fear about people coming in to take jobs that Congress passed laws um, that nearly all that nearly banned all immigration coming from China between 1882 and 1943.
Um, countries sometimes restrict immigration, primarily in an attempt to preserve their own culture. Uh, the people of Japan, from one of the most ethnically similar countries in the world, Japan maintains this by sharply limiting immigration, even though its population pyramid indicates that it will face a shortage of workers. Remember, we talked about that, um, that because of the dependency ratio and the shortage of workers, Japan loosened their immigration policies and it didn't work, that culturally um, it was so different. We know that there's effects on the, cult the countries of origin. Um, we could do this on multiple scales. Um, there's some positives and negatives. It could relief overcrowding. When countries have too many people and opportunities and resources are scarce, um, you end up leaving. That's part of Zelensky's model, right? You stage two and stage three countries will try to migrate to stage four and stage five because they're looking for opportunities. It's too crowded, they need, they need space. But it can also have negative effects of the people. If the working age people leave, the area of migration is left with a population skewed towards the elderly and children. This creates a dependency ratio problem. Culturally, it can undercut the traditional family structure. And both of these have occurred during China's rural to urban migration, which is the largest migration within a country in history. We could also talk about the brain drain. We could again talk about conflict arising between immigrants and native-born citizens. Um, they may clash over religious beliefs, cultural practices, access to jobs. Um, we could talk about uh, remittance, sending money back. Um, so think about that migration can have positive, negative, political, economic, and cultural effects on the country of origin, as well as the destination. And that's really it for unit two. We'll be moving on to unit three, which is culture. Um, and that would be a very, very, very long podcast broken up into several uh, topics. Thanks for listening.